And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Kathleen Marden, who some consider to be UFO royalty. She is an author and 2021 recipient of the International UFO Congress Lifetime Achievement Award. Today, we'll discuss her personal struggle with the unknown that has carried her through the twists, turns, and glimpses of mysterious realities and more. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So Kathleen, you are the niece of the famous Betty and Barney Hill. And for those in my audience who are not familiar with your aunt and uncle's UFO experience, will you please, in a nutshell, tell us about their encounter with a UFO in 1961? I would love to. My aunt and uncle uh, took an impromptu sort of trip to Niagara Falls in September of 1961. My aunt was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire, and my uncle worked for the post office. He decided to surprise Betty with this trip to Niagara Falls. I'm a little bit responsible for that because I had been there a month or two earlier uh, with another aunt and uncle and was showing Betty and Barney the photographs and talking about what a wonderful time I had. So Barney uh, decided to invite Betty to do the same thing, but it was a surprise. So they had a wonderful vacation in Niagara Falls and Montreal, and then they were returning home through upstate New Hampshire at night, and a uh, craft started to come in closer and closer. Uh, it had an unconventional appearance. There were multicolored lights. It appeared to be rotating. It started bouncing back and forth in the sky. My, my uncle described it as being like a yo-yo, but uh, if anyone is familiar with the Tic Tac sightings and the U.S. Navy's uh, uh, radar video of that, then uh, it reminds me of that ping pong kind of effect that, and Barney called it a yo-yo effect. Uh, so Betty and Barney had an interest in looking at this very strange event, and it started to come in closer and closer. And finally, it descended over their vehicle uh, and stopped at about 100 feet above them on the highway in, on Route 3 in upstate New Hampshire. Barney stopped the car in the middle of the road and uh, took the binoculars from the seat and looked up at this craft. And he wanted to get uh, a better view of the inside of it. So he stepped away from the car. And when this happened, it shifted to an adjacent field and he followed it into the field. Betty remained in the car. The interior light was on and the driver's side door was open. So Barney, uh, who was a confirmed skeptic, was looking up at this craft through the binoculars and through the windows, he observed uh, entities that he described as being, quote, somehow not human. This was in the initial report to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. 
They frightened him greatly. There was no sound to this craft. It was just sort of hovering in the air. And as he looked at the movement of these entities, he had the distinct impression that they had a plan. And that plan was to, quote, capture him like a uh, bug in a net, close quote. He pulled the binoculars down away from his eyes so uh, forcefully that he broke the leather strap and went screaming back to the car to my aunt that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. As he was entering the car, he looked up and saw that that craft was moving in his direction, closed the door and went speeding down the U.S. highway. Um, He told Betty to look up to see if she could see the craft. She opened the window and looked up, but all she saw was blackness, although it was a bright light night. She was hoping to see the lights on the craft if it was there. Within seconds, she and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of their vehicle. They heard a tingling, uh, felt a tingling sensation in their bodies, and the car vibrated. The next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the highway with little recall of what had occurred in the interim. They heard a second series of buzzing sounds that sort of restored them to consciousness. They didn't see the craft at this time, but they remembered a fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the surface, the land. Uh, They recalled finding themselves on a dirt road with tall trees all around and some kind of a roadblock. When they arrived home, they realized they were later than they had anticipated. And within a couple of months, they discovered that it was a full two hours missing time that they had. There was physical evidence that something unusual and very strange had happened to them. And it had left spots on the trunk of the car where they heard these sounds the previous night. Betty's dress was torn in several places. Barney's, the tops of Barney's best dress shoes were so scraped that he had to purchase new shoes. He was a meticulous dresser. The watches they were wearing stopped working and never ran again. It became the first scientifically investigated case of alien abduction in the United States. Now, being their niece, you must have been one of the first people they told about this story. What were they like when they were explaining the story to you, and how did you react? Well, I first heard about this story when I arrived home from school. I was 13 years old. My mother was on the telephone with Betty, and uh, my mother was very concerned because Betty feared that they might have been exposed to radiation or contamination. Uh, She and Barney had taken uh, long baths. They uh, just felt dirty, much dirtier than usual when they arrived home. And so my mother said she would call our neighbor who was a physicist to find out what to do. But within a couple of days, my family, my parents and my two brothers and I went 
the 20 miles to my aunt and uncle's home in New Hampshire. And that's when I heard the experience um, for myself. And um, Betty seemed somewhat excited. I was concerned. Um, she took my mother and my brothers and I aside and told us what she remembered. My father sat quietly in a corner with Barney. Barney seemed different that day. Um, my father told me later that Barney had described those non-entities, non-human entities that he saw on the craft. And so uh, Barney was quiet. He was normally a pretty jovial person, and we had a great relationship with him. But that day, we were told not to bother him. He was waiting for a phone call from Pease Air Force Base. He and Betty had made an initial report, and they were expecting a call back. And so uh, he was different. But we went out uh, to the car. We were able to see those shiny spots that were all about the same size on the trunk of the vehicle. They hadn't been there before this event. And they now caused a compass needle to spin, meaning that there was a magnetic field in that part of the car. And it wasn't anywhere near the battery. So I immediately took an interest in astronomy. <laughs> and uh, I was also concerned about what happened to my aunt and uncle. I was looking for answers. I was a very good science student. I thought that I might uh, grow up to be a microbiologist or um, maybe a medical doctor. I didn't. I was first a social worker and then an educator and education services coordinator before I became an author and uh, UFO abduction uh, researcher and investigator. Did Barney give any extra details of the ETs beyond non-human? At that time, he said they were dressed in black, shiny uniforms. And uh, one of them, no, that was under hypnosis. The, the conscious recall was they were dressed in black, shiny uniforms. And they appeared to have, at least one appeared to have something on his head. Um, the All he could think of was like a military officer's cap or something like that. Now, I've seen photographs of ETs since then, and they do wear headgear, hmm. some of them. Do most of them have the typical gray appearance? Not necessarily. The, the ones that I have received photographs or video of from my investigations uh, are not the gray types. They, uh, it's unusual. Some look pretty human. Um, but a little bit different than humans. There is one that had a face that kind of resembled almost a dog or a bear. Um, very strange. Wow. Uh, had a kind of an odd type of neck as well, kind of a humped neck. Uh, so they're, no, they're not all grays. There are different types. There are so many alien videos that are posted to social media these days. 
it's hard to really, you know, say what's real and what's not anymore. How do you do that? I don't even look at alien videos on YouTube. I was the Mutual UFO Network's director of the Experiencer Research Team for 10 years before I retired from that. But I have been a member of MUFON and an investigator since 1991. I investigated many, many cases. In fact, I wrote the protocols for how to investigate an abduction investigation. And I was MUFON's uh, director of field investigator training for 10 years as well. So I have a lot of experience in doing investigations. And uh, I only investigate those cases that, or even speak about those cases that I am not able to find an other explanation for. In the video that I was talking about, I did an analysis of this video. I did a background check on the witnesses. Uh, the one of these uh, of three witnesses uh, was investigated by uh, representatives from the army and also from the CIA. And they concluded that it was real. I had investigated this case earlier among other investigators and include and determined that it was real. There was sufficient evidence to believe that it was real. So then when this occurred with three individuals, I had that information and I had uh, the opportunity to investigate again, all three. So that was the beginning of that process. And uh, also, in addition to my investigation, a MUFON state director did an independent investigation as well and uh, determined that there was no prosaic explanation for what had occurred. And there was sufficient evidence to believe that it could be real. Was there ever a case that just completely rocked you to your core and almost fundamentally changed you as a person? And if so, what was it? Well, that was one of the cases, but I have had uh, many cases. And I think that uh, one thing that really rocked me to my core was a case that I investigated in Texas that was very similar to the events that are occurring on the Skinwalker Ranch. In that event, uh, there was a credible witness. He was an airline pilot who had retired and was running a small airport and doing repairs on planes. He had uh, people who worked for him and he and his wife were living at the airport. And on that particular night, uh, he heard people outside. Now, this was around uh, Native American land. Uh, it was an industrial area, and it was three miles from the nearest town. 
there were uh, there was it was heavily forested. And so he thought, well, you know, maybe there are some kids from town who are down vandalizing the airport. So we went outside and he discovered that they weren't children. They were adults and they were pointing at two lights in the sky that were the brightest that he had ever seen. And remember that he was a commercial pilot for a number of years and had a college degree. Uh, so he was highly knowledgeable about what flies in the air. Well, this drew his attention, and uh, he tried to call in these craft, and eventually he was successful. And the craft were coming in. He was taking photographs of them. The Mutual UFO Network investigated. The field investigator went out and saw a craft at fairly close range that was not a conventional craft. By the time he contacted me, uh, he was at wit's end because he got far more than he anticipated that he would receive. Uh, he had been abducted. One night he had been talking to his sister and he was in his kitchen. He looked out the window on his door into the hangar and he saw a bark brown tall entity standing against the wall. And there were three small silver entities that saw him and moved in unison. He described it as looking like a gate swinging open. And they were moving in his direction. He didn't realize that they could enter his residence. And he went running to his bedroom. That's the last thing he remembered from that night. Uh, over time, he started to experience other things, such as uh, light beings, such as uh, sort of what we think of as negative entities, or some people call them demons. There, uh, This really was astounding. And then... Uh, he and his mother looked out over the airport one night, and they didn't see the runway at night. They observed what appeared to be a grassy savanna in the daylight with mammoths or hairy elephants, is what he described, uh, on what had been, <laughs> what was at that point, the airport. And that was just really astounding. That made me want to uh, understand more the interdimensional and uh, time-space aspects of all of this, because I started out as a nuts and bolts researcher. That's what <laughs> I dedicated 20 years of my research and investigation career to doing. I thought that if UFOs simply disappeared, it was because they flew away so rapidly. Uh, I had some kind of prosaic explanation for everything, but I realized in this case that I had to change my mind. A lot of times on this program, we talk about spirit guides and guardian angels. 
Do you think that those could be ETs? I'm not certain if they could be extraterrestrial. You might say in a very broad sense, they're extraterrestrial because they're not here on our terrain, but they seem to be able to appear. And these light beings are often compared to uh, uh, angels. And in one case that I was talking about, this case of Chris Bledsoe that I first spoke of with the two other individuals who had the video, Chris has also had uh, what I think of as Marian apparitions, where a lady in light with outstretched arms wearing a white gown has appeared to him at least twice. She materialized in his home and she gave prophecy. So it makes me wonder, what is this all about? You know, what are these somehow related, this extraterrestrial presence and what we associate with religion? Angels, you know, it's uh, it's very, very interesting to me. Do you think that your aunt and uncle's experience with the UFO was your pivotal moment that got you into the field, or was there something else? Well, I was 13 when this occurred, so it had to be the per- pivotal moment because I had never even heard about UFOs prior to that time. Uh, It really sparked my interest in the field, Uh, but I know I grew up and I went to college and I got married and had children and did the traditional kind of work kind of thing, family kind of thing. But uh, back about 32 years ago, uh, I developed uh, a debilitating illness and I had to leave my career. I uh, was at home. I wanted some intellectual stimulation. I had a lot of stimulation in my teaching career and graduate school and in writing, that sort of thing. And so I was thinking about what could I do uh, to give myself the stimulation? And I thought, you know, I've always wanted to know more about my aunt and uncle's case. And that's when I decided to investigate in an unbiased manner, scientifically. And so I, uh, as my health permitted, did an extensive investigation over 14 years. And I always had a secret desire to become a writer. That was what I majored in first in college before my aunt told me to do something practical like social work or education. And so uh, there I was with this opportunity. And uh, I decided to, uh, uh, as Joseph Campbell stated, follow my bliss and uh, begin this career path. And it was so interesting. And the information that I was able to acquire in this very extensive investigation and research project uh, encouraged me. It sort of 
gave me the the spark of interest to continue with this. And uh, during this entire time, I was I had become a MUFON investigator as well. So I was uh, doing a great deal of work and investigation, and over time, uh, wanted to answer all of the questions that uh, came to me. I've always been a very inquisitive person. And I have to tell you that uh, I had my own experience. uh, And that also uh, created greater curiosity in me. Well, tell us about it. Well, when I was 17 years old, my aunt and uncle were doing uh, an experiment with a scientific team. They had already undergone hypnosis with a renowned psychiatrist in Boston for a period of six months and discovered that they had been taken to craft by these ETs. And uh, so the um, scientists that were working with them, uh, asked them to do what they called a psychophysics experiment, sort of like a CE uh, experiment today to attempt to call in craft. They would tell my aunt uh, the location where they wanted to see the craft, and she would uh, send these thoughts every night out to these ETs, and then the scientists would go out to see if they could uh, locate the craft in the sky. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And then my aunt decided that she was going to call in craft to land on my grandparents' farm. And these scientists were knowledgeable about this, were giving her the information as well. And a craft did land on my grandparents' farm. It was observed by two people. One was a pilot returning home from work at night. The other was my grandmother, who got up and looked out her bedroom window and saw it. The following day, my brothers and I heard about this, and we went out and we found some evidence on the ground that this had occurred. Uh, I also had memories that something had happened to me. And I was in a different environment. My mother was there. Uh, As a 17-year-old, the only thing that I could think of was that my mother had arranged for me to have surgery during the night because for some reason I shouldn't know about this. Um, It was not what occurred. Uh, Later, my mother and I reported this to Dr. James Harder from the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and we underwent an investigation and hypnosis with him. Um, But, uh, of course, what actually did happen is my mother and I were taken to craft. Uh, I had this physiological evidence on my body, pain. Um, and these memories that were identical to my mother's memories. But uh, that 
was uh, traumatic for me. In a sense, I, I didn't understand what had occurred. Uh, it caused some difficulty in my relationship with my mother because I thought that she ha had arranged this without my knowledge. I had no idea that this happens within families. I only learned that later when I worked on uh, studies on experiencers. Uh, so this was the beginning of a history of being taken uh, repeatedly over a, a long period of time did and I, my exploration of this. Did either you or your mother have any markings on your body? I have had marks on my body, but in that time frame, we weren't looking for marks. Um, later on, uh, when I started to collect evidence, uh, we discovered that uh, I had a triangular-shaped cutout mark on uh, my hand one morning after I had an event happen. I've had uh, finger marks on my body. I've had scratches on parts of my body that I cannot reach. Uh, so I've, I have had marks on my body. Uh, investigators found what might be an implant right here. It, uh, it's a small something about the size of a pinhead. When I manipulate it, it causes tones in my head and sometimes a strong tingling sensation in the crown of my head uh, as well. Uh, there have been witnesses when two times when I was taken and I have also uh, taken uh, a, a test. It's called the American Personality Inventory. It was developed by Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis. Uh, Bud Hopkins uh, is a renowned uh, UFO abduction researcher, now deceased, uh, one of the pioneers in the field. And Ted Davis was a psychiatric social worker. It was based on the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory, and it was standardized and reduced in size and tested by Dr. James, by Dr. Um, Don C. Donderry, who was a psychology professor at McGill University. Uh, it was uh, used to determine those people who had real UFO abduction syndrome, as opposed to people who were merely wanter bees or bakers and the general population. And my test result came out uh, very, very close to the center of uh, those people who had UFO abduction syndrome. So I do have a lot of evidence, but I also had a lot of doubt <laughs> for many years. I was attempting to find a prosaic explanation to explain all of this. In your book, Forbidden Knowledge, you wrote that you had a miraculous healing in 2012. Can you tell us about it? Yes. I was working on my first study on experiencers. Uh, I was looking for commonalities that experiencers share. It was a small study of 50 experiencers in a 25-person control group. And one of the people who took part in the study was a man from Australia, Paul Hamden. And um, not only was he an experiencer of contact, 
but he was able to communicate with these non-humans by sort of setting his consciousness aside and allowing these gray entities to take over his vocal cords. And uh, while I was in conversation with him over a number of months, he at one point asked me if I would like to speak with this entity that he calls Keek. It's not the entity's real name. It's what he all calls him. And he's part of a uh, council of ETs, Paul said. So uh, even though it was a very strange experience for me, I decided I would like to speak with Keek. So I had meetings uh, via the internet with Paul and Keek. And then eventually, I decided that I would ask Keek if he would heal me. Uh, from this illness that I had had for so many years that was disabling. At that time, um, by, I, I had my first book captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, uh, published in 2007. By that time, I had written a couple of additional books, and I was really kind of struggling, speaking at conferences, uh, doing live appearances, that sort of thing. And I needed some help. And Keek said that he would help. Now, I wasn't expecting help. I there was no anticipation that this was real to me. But three nights later, I woke up and I was in a tremendous amount of pain. And I woke my husband up and I said, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know if I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack, um, but something is seriously wrong with me. And he said, well, give it a minute and let me know if you want me to call the ambulance or take you to the emergency room. The next thing I knew, I was in a different environment. Uh, my body might have remained in my bed, according to Paul, but he said my etheric body was taken to a new place. Well, I remember the environment that I was in. I found myself lying on a table. I was in a misty environment and there were tall glowing entities up near my head that I could see in my peripheral vision. I was confused what was happening. And I felt this strong tingling sensation through my body. They showed me either a vision or a screen. And on that, I could see what was like little bots uh, moving around the periphery of my body. And then I could see my organs. And I saw three organs that were highlighted in, um, or two organs, I believe it was, in pink and mint green. And uh, I uh, had to experience this pain. But before long, I was returned to my bed and I was waking up in the morning and I have not had a relapse of that illness. Uh, so I'm very grateful to Paul Hamden and this little gray uh, entity named Keek. Uh, and uh, that was the experience that really changed 
my understanding of all of this that is is much greater than having a craft land outside or take me from outside through uh, uh, an opening in the craft and taken off to someplace else. This was this opened up an entirely new understanding and dimension to me. And I wanted to learn far more than I knew in the past. It's almost like you had a near-death-like experience. You had this pain and your consciousness was taken out of your body to this place and you were healed. Yes, it does sound like that. But it was in concert and in the timeline of Peak's decision to heal me. So that was uh, very interesting. You know, in, in the research that we have done, we have discovered that the majority of abductees or what you might call experiencers of contact have had near-death experiences as well. It's great that you mentioned that because some of my guests who are near-death experiencers share with us that they see aliens on the other side. I've that- heard that before. And I've heard uh, with people that I've talked to about being on craft that they have seen deceased family members on craft. So what is that all about? Yeah. Huh. We have certainly have more questions than answers. More recently, I'm getting reports of people during their near-death experience waking up in pods Kind of like the Matrix. Wow. Very interesting. The direction of your work took a turn in 2016 after the MUFON International Symposium in Orlando. What happened at that symposium? I was a speaker at that symposium and uh, was working with Stanton Friedman, with whom I worked for many years. He was a nuclear physicist known around the world for his research. And... uh, I had friends, my friend uh, and colleague, Denise Stoner, uh, filled in for me, uh, running a support group for experiencers. And one of the people who attended that support group was a man from Florida who had been uh, asked by this council of extraterrestrials that he had been speaking with for um, many years or had known for many years, at least. And uh, so he spoke about that too with Denise and the group. And then at lunchtime, he went to look for a table where he could be seated to have his lunch. And it was very busy. And he saw one table where there was a seat. And sitting at that table was my good friend, uh, Dr. Melanie Barton Bragg. And Uh, Melanie is uh, a Christian minister, and she's also a a, a psychotherapist. And uh, so she said, sure, have a seat. And they began a very interesting conversation. So after that conference, I heard from Melanie, and she asked me if I wanted to meet that man Kevin Briggs, I could join them for lunch. And she told me a little bit about him and said that he was an experiencer. That's all I knew. 
And so I said, I would love to meet him for lunch and you. And could we ask Denise Stoner? Because she and I have worked together as investigators for many years. And so we got together. We had many lunches together before I invited everyone back to my house to continue the conversation. And at that meeting at my home, uh, we were asking Kevin questions. And he slipped into what to the others appeared to be channeling these ETs. Now, it wasn't apparent to me at that meeting. All I knew is that Kevin, from the age of eight, uh, when he grew up in the UK, uh, had these very tall human-like entities appear in the bathroom. Uh, they frightened him. But then one of them came back as a conscious orb and stayed with Kevin and taught him to astral travel. When he was a 14-year-old paper boy, uh, there was a craft that came down and landed early in the morning, like 5.30 in the morning, at uh, a park. And he went to that craft and he was taken on board and he recognized the entities that he saw way back when he was a younger boy. And he met what is known to him as the Council of Eight. These are fifth and sixth dimensional entities and there is a ninth dimensional entity as well and an association with another ninth dimensional entity who is a healer. And so I was fascinated in all of this. In fact, I conducted a hypnosis session with Kevin. And then after that session, he started to receive more information. And Dr. Melanie uh, was helping him too, to, to conduct meditations to try to contact these entities. And eventually, he invited the three of us to uh, join him uh, to ask questions of this Council of Eight. We were all, and Melanie wasn't, but Denise and I, I should say, were uh, you know very scientific uh, to this point in, in what we were doing. I think we still are. Uh, but we wanted to learn more. We wanted to take our uh, scientific equipment to these meetings and to attempt to find evidence that these entities were real. So we met once a month for a period of two years. In the second year, we added more members uh, to take part in this experiment. And we were permitted to ask questions of the Council of Eight. So we would uh, begin with only a few questions between the, the three of us because Kevin uh, really had a physiological response to this. Uh, we were able to measure uh, a significant temperature increase in the room in the presence of these entities. And we ended up feeling a very strong tingling sensation in our bodies when they came into 
the room. It was a fascinating experiment. And in my book, Forbidden Knowledge, uh, I have posted 120 questions and their answers to our questions. I found this fascinating, uh, especially because one of these entities named Zark, uh, spelled J-A-R-K, but pronounced Zark, is a little gray. And uh, he wanted to meet me in person. And he came to me and uh, showed me, I was expecting to see craft, but what I saw out on the lake that I live on was about a 35 foot diameter, turbulent wave of water that moved around and around and around many waves. And in a circle, I'd never seen that on my lake before. Uh, If a duck is paddling, um, there might be a tiny circle of, of that develops, but this was very large. And I felt Zark's presence and I learned to communicate with him telepathically. And uh, this was very, very interesting. He wanted to channel through me and uh, I was frightened because I didn't know exactly what he was and I didn't want anything to share my vocal cords unless I knew that it was something that was very kind and gentle and, and high vibrating. So uh, I did share uh, my vocal cords with him once uh, in front of Denise and Melanie. I haven't done it again Um, But it was an extraordinarily interesting experiment that uh, and Denise and Melanie and I were all shown sufficient evidence to believe that this was something real. I still can't say that it was extraterrestrials in the sense that they've come here from another planet. They claim that they are a protective force of the universe in this quadrant of our galaxy. They say that they are here to um, assist in our development. And uh, they've given us an understanding of consciousness and vibration and the differences between uh, the dimensions uh, concerning the vibrational frequency and level of consciousness. So that's something. I know they're there. I don't know for certain that they're extraterrestrials. Can you give us one example of the hundred or so questions that you asked and what the answer was? Yes, I'd I'd be happy to. Um, I asked that very question. I said, you know, what is the difference between extraterrestrials and Uh, just like ghosts and fairies and angels and everything else. And uh, he said that uh, it is a difference in vibration and that uh, they all vibrate at different frequencies and that from time to time, interdimensionals that are not extraterrestrial entities, but are here in the earth consciousness, um, can come through, sort of break through that membrane between dimensions here on our planet. 
And then they are, there are the extraterrestrials who inhabit different solar systems who are also living in different dimensions because we live in a multidimensional universe. So that was the explanation I received. Do you think ETs just randomly choose people to contact or there's more of a you know reason behind it? They told me that in the beginning, their selection was random. Uh, they picked up children who were on the back lands of the family farm, uh, people who were driving down the road, a lonely road at night, people were, who were fishing or camping or hunting. But over time, they identified the characteristics in those individuals that they were looking for. And they said that they wanted to upgrade the human genome, and they also were looking for uh, a close genetic line. So that's why they began to take people along uh, family uh, genetic lines, such as they did in my family, um, because they were attempting this upgrade on us. And uh, they were simply looking uh, at, at their scientific experiment to see if they were being successful in what they were attempting to accomplish. They were also, they said, attempting to raise humans' consciousness and spirituality to a higher level because they're very concerned about pollution on this planet. In fact, when they picked me up, they would take tissue samples to test my body for toxicity, they told me. Um, it wasn't the council who told me that. The ETs who took me told me that. Uh, also, we've known for many, many years, and, and the council reiterated this, that they are very concerned about our use of nuclear weapons and that these nuclear weapons, when they are detonated, cause tears in those membranes between the dimensions and cause destruction out through the other dimensions, and that this is of real concern to them. You know, so all of this makes me wonder, you know, what is going on with these different dimensions? Are the ETs just in one of these dimensions, but saying that they're coming here from uh, different galaxies or solar systems within uh, star systems in our own galaxy? It's interesting that you mentioned that because I never thought about perhaps that all the testing of these nuclear weapons have created many, many tears in the dimensions. I suspect that they have opened portals, um, and this is why we're seeing that timeline differential, such as uh, is going on at the Skinwalker Ranch and was in that case I described earlier in the state of Texas. So, um, yes, it, there is something going on. There are portals that have opened, and it takes me back to uh, something that I uh, read in the early files of what happened with uh, the scientists and military people who were working on nuclear testing in the 1940s and the early 50s. They would see these 
UFOs coming in when they would detonate a nuclear weapon. And they were wondering initially if this was just fallout from what they were doing. In a sense, it was, I think, a response to what they were doing, that these entities were really taking a very dangerous step toward a a mission to change things on this planet so we would not destroy ourselves and them. A lot of people want to meet ETs, and obviously people participate in the CE5 events. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I think that anyone who wants to do this should do it in the company of others who are able to call in positive ETs. I have worked with a few individuals who wanted more than anything to have these contact experiences. And they were not careful. They didn't protect themselves. And they ended up uh, developing uh, attachments of negative entities. So I, uh, I say, be cautious, be careful what you look for. But if you do this and you do it in a very positive way with experienced people and protect yourself, then it's really wonderful for the people who are having these experiences that are positive. Do you mind sharing with us how your lifetime of UFO research has affected your personal life with friends and family? My friends uh, have become people who are very interested in the same things that I am interested in. Um, And among family members, they're supportive. They're supportive of what I do. So I'm very fortunate to have a very supportive family who uh, understand my quest uh, for answers and that I am doing this as scientifically as possible, that uh, sometimes I go out on a limb and uh, some of the family is uh, very pleased that I'm looking at the spiritual side of this and even um, the religious implications of this too. They feel very comfortable with that more so than they did with the idea of ET abduction. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so I've been very lucky. My husband has been supportive. He travels with me when I go to conferences to assist me at my vendor table and uh, has spoken uh, out uh, when people have asked uh, for his opinion. And so I've been very pleased with all of it. I'm, I feel blessed. That's great. Someone in your position must meet people all the time who want to share their experiences with you. What criteria do you use to determine this person is being truthful or not? Well, the first thing I do is I tell people that I, anything they say to me is confidential. I also, if I want to know if somebody is being truthful, I have been trained in FBI um, body language analysis. So I can look at people and be able to determine if their body language is deceptive. Also, I know so much about this topic. I know uh, what 
the secret information is that others don't know about. So, you know, some people are self-deceived, um, but I try to help them as well to um, by teaching everyone how to investigate their own evidence uh, in order to determine for themselves if this is real and what it actually is. Um, and as I spoke of during this interview, you know, sometimes the lines are blurred and sometimes it's more than we think it is. But in terms of hoaxers, I, you know, when I was doing investigations, there were some hoaxers who were looking for fame and fortune. But what I have to say is in the UFO field, you, you, I don't know of anyone who has ever made money. More likely, people are lose their jobs. They lose their reputations. And I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. So I'm, I hold the stories from most people very close to my heart. And um, the, I reveal only information that I am certain uh, is real and cases that have a tremendous amount of evidence that has been verified. Kathleen, after watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions or share their experience with you. Are you up for that? Yes. Uh, people can uh, go to my website at kathleen-marden.com. Um, they can write to me briefly if they want to have um, a conversation with me via Zoom. They can book a consultation with me. I do charge a small fee for that. Um, but uh, there is a, a lot of free stuff on my website as well. I'm the author of six books. If you would like an autographed copy of my books, uh, you can purchase one there. Otherwise, they're available in nearly all for formats on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Do you have anything else that you're working on currently that you would like us to know about? I am not ready to announce that at the moment. I am working on something, but uh, we're waiting until after the beginning of the year to announce that, and you'll be able to find it on my website. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Please cooperate to uh, project love into our collective consciousness that this is so important to raising the vibration of our planet. There's been much darkness with war, with suffering, with COVID, etc. And it's so important for us to come together to uh, project this consciousness in positive, just positive thoughts into our collective consciousness. It makes all the difference. Science has proved that. Kathleen, thank you for that message, and thank you again for being my guest. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.